learning, exploring, awakening, playing. Welcome to the Leap Podcast, where I talk with teachers, coaches, artists, and authors about how we can improve our health, well-being, and advance the evolution of humanity for ourselves and our children through learning, exploring, awakening, and playing. Welcome to the second Leap Podcast. Today's guest is a friend and a fellow Feldenkrais practitioner, Edward Yu. Edward has written two books, one, The Art of Slowing Down, it's for running, for runners. And his other book is uh, quite an in-depth look at the fitness industry, how it uh, dehumanizes us, how it makes us dumber in a sensory motor way, and... We get quite deep into that, and it's an interesting uh, talk if you're interested in fitness and, and becoming more human. He also relates it to other trends in society, so it's not just fitness, it's just how we look at certain things in, in society in general, uh, kind of a reductionist view. So we get into it pretty deeply, and I hope you'll enjoy. Thanks for listening. So welcome to the uh, second edition of the Leap Podcast. Today's guest is Edward Yu. Edward is a martial artist and Feldenkrais practitioner. And he's written a book called The Mass Psychology of Fitism. So I wanted to ask Edward some more about the book. It's an interesting read. It's very in-depth and points out a lot of, uh, well, how would I say... Um, uh, the craziness of, of our thinking and fitness. Uh, we'll get into that in a better description. Edward has also written a book called The Art of Slowing Down. It's Feldenkrais for Running. and That's also a wonderful book. Maybe we can talk about that in another show. Anyway, so welcome, Edward. Thank you. Glad to be here, John. So tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe some background and how did you get into martial arts and Feldenkrais and maybe what led you to write that tomb, The Mass Psychology of Fittism. It's a big book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bigger than I, I had expected. Um, so I, uh, I like to say that I've been pretending to do martial arts for, for 20 years. And um, before that, in almost a different lifetime, I was a runner, a competitive runner. And did a, a little bit of triathloning, but that was that was thirties uh, about thirty years ago. Um, I I've also been in Feldenkrais for about twenty years. Um, what inspired the last book, the Mass Psychology of Fitism? I'll, I'll give you the subtitle: It's Fitness Evolution and the First Two Laws of Thermodynamics. So, what inspired the book was um, back in 2009, I was teaching some fitness classes and I wanted to explain some of my ideas to my students. So I started writing. And my ideas, by the way, are, are, were largely rooted in Feldenkrais and my experiences in martial arts. Uh, I began writing and I thought I'd write a paragraph and it turned into a few pages and a few pages turned into a hundred or more pages <laughs> months later. Um, well, thankfully, I never presented those pages to anybody except a couple people um, who, who luckily never read it. Then years later, um, I started writing again. I threw out all of those pages and started from ground zero. And, uh, with the same idea of, of maybe trying to explain some of my ideas and, and analyzing what um, the fitness industry is doing and, and what movement is uh, from their paradigm and what fitness and movement could be from a more humanistic standpoint. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, well, let's start with that. What? Um, I mean, maybe a hard question to answer in a simple way, but what are the difference between, or some of the differences between uh, the fitness industry's industry's paradigm and what you said would being a more natural, humanistic way of moving? Well, I think it's important to. Um, as with everything else, to look at the origins of the fitness industry. So maybe I'll start there, oh, okay. uh, or, or the origins of anything, and and not only the origins, but what the paradigm actually is, and and what it's rooted in. And um, so I'm going to kind of rephrase the question and and say, what are the problems of the mass fitness culture and conventional fitness? One, it's reductionistic. Um, I'm going to kind of list them, and we can mm -hmm. go into more detail if you want. Yeah, that's good. Um, two, dehumanizing. Uh, three, it's d divorced from the original conception of the word fitness, which is from Charles Darwin, um, his, maybe his sixth or seventh iteration of the origin of species. Um. It's corporate-based, all right, and that's something I think is important to acknowledge. And uh, it, it's rooted in a faulty notion of meritocracy, that meritocracy meaning essentially that um, you get what you deserve. <laughs> mm -hmm. And okay. through, hard, through hard work, you can achieve anything. Uh, but that kind of ignores... The pervasive use of steroids and of Photoshop, you know, it, um, it ignores education and socioeconomics and, and that d different sectors of the population are eating different things and that in turn influences how their body uh, reacts and, and what it looks like. Right, okay. Okay, so so those yeah, I think if we could go into those different points, that would be an interesting um, way of answering the question which you rephrased, which was good. Reductionistic. Uh, are you talking about that? You know, like machines are reduc reductionist. They they turn people into biceps and triceps and abs and glutes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's 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 um, looking at the body as a machine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in fact the fitness industry is is heavily rooted in the first law of thermodynamics which is something that came about through the study of steam engines two or three hundred years ago um, so we're, we're using a theory that was applied to machines and we're attempting to apply it or we are actually applying it to humans that's not necessarily wrong, but when it takes over and becomes um, the main thrust of exercise or one of the main thrusts of exercise, then we're talking about reducing a human to parts, to reducing a human to being machine-like, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to attempting to quantify a human being. Again, there's uh, nothing wrong with using numbers and equations and quantification, but um, to make that the main thrust of, of movement creates a lot of problems, which we see in, in, if we examine the industry further. So um, the first law of thermodynamics has led to basically the calories in, calories out equation, and that's what nutrition is what I call nutritionism or mm -hmm. nutrition science and fitism or exercise science um, has largely focused on. There are some other equations they use now, but those are two of the main ones. Uh, that's the main, sorry, that's the main equation, fitness, right. uh, calories in, calories out equals net calories. Right. So that's that idea, just to clarify for listeners who might not be familiar with that term, the idea that you need to burn more calories than you take in in order to become fit or to lose weight, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So. Um, and, and then there's, I mean, the stretch is that you will look like the billboard model. Um, right, right. Uh, actually, you'll look like the photoshopped image of the billboard model. That's <laughs> what you'll yeah. look like. So that seems to, to move into the, the next point that you had on dehumanizing. Because it seems to me that using the model of a steam engine is, uh, well, that's pretty dehumanizing. Yeah, it's, it's a tool that has in turn, uh, that we could use, but it has in turn used us, I think. You know, it's, so if, if, we, um, if numbers bec become primary over, um, how shall I say it? the intrinsic value of movement, the intrinsic interest that we might have in moving, then it's reducing us to, to parts, reducing us to trying to fulfill um, certain numbers, okay, mm -hmm. whether it's to reach a certain heart rate or to run a certain number of miles or to do a certain number of repetitions. Basically, everything boils down to repetitions. We're mm -hmm. counting our repetitions, whether we count them in terms of time or miles or steps. It all comes down to repeating certain motions in order to burn a certain number of calories or if we want to increase muscle mass to maximize the increase of muscle mass according to certain theories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, well, what would be uh, another choice of motivation that wouldn't, that wouldn't involve quantifying or turning, you know, using numbers for, for goals? I think interest. Interest, uh, interest in something, whether it's interest in playing the trombone or interest in uh, playing the violin or interest in playing uh, football or doing martial arts or the tango. Because it, the fitness culture itself is taking, uh, it's kind of reversing things. It's taking the measure of something it's like taking the test, the standardized test, to mean the actual um, phenomenon that's being tested. So in other words, in schools, we use standardized testing to supposedly measure learning and knowledge. Students more and more in the United States, probably not in Finland, but more and more in the United States are studying for the test, which has the effect of reducing learning, but making students more into automatons. Right, right. It's reducing their imagination and creativity and thinking, which actually Ellen Langer writes very eloquently about, right? the Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer. Right. Um, and fitness is is doing the fitness uh, culture that we live in the mass fitness culture is doing a parallel thing which is rather than following a, a pursuit that interests us we are taking the test and and we're kind of um practicing for the test the test being how many push-ups can you do or uh how many accounting yeah how many it's it's it turns into sort of an accounting scheme how many of this can you do right right and then so how, how little time or or yeah how far can you run like you said yeah right and then can we can we can i reach a certain heart rate which uh which first i have to calculate according to my age some kind of standardized um, maximum heart rate that I'm supposed to reach according to certain criteria. Right. You know. Of course, I could play the devil's advocate and say that, I mean, people, I mean, athletes are getting faster and are, I mean, football players, American football players are getting bigger. Uh, soccer players, of course, getting more and more skilled. I mean, Usain Bolt is 
fast and you know faster than other people. Um, yeah, tennis players better. Everything seems to be getting better, and some of that is because they're, they're lifting weights, and I'm sure nutrition plays a part of it. So, I mean, could you make the argument that 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 quantification can be helpful? I think it can be. It can be. I think um, overall, it's it's not been helpful. Um, I think over. I mean, we're talking about. You're, I think what you're talking about is really elite athletes, the elite of the elite. Uh, if you look at the the average person, or you look at um, the numbers of people who are obese and and considered unfit, it's it, it the proportions are growing. Right. Uh, whether or not runners or people are getting faster or turning into better athletes is, I think, an unclear. It's, it's unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, if, even, there's even been uh, some research done about 100-meter runners and, and, and Olympic swimmers, and there are certain technological advances that we have now that they, ha they didn't have even 20 years ago. And uh, much less back when Jesse Owens was running. Yeah, I saw that. that. Maybe we saw the same program about that, how the track nowadays gives a certain amount of energy back. The spikes can withstand much more um, resistance to sliding. And, I mean, Jesse Owens had to dig his own holes for his right. starting. And uh, in that program, they took a... a pretty high-level Canadian sprinter and put him in the conditions that Jesse Owens would have had the same kind of shoes. I think they actually managed to make almost the same kind of shoes, put him on a cinder track and had him run against Jesse Owens' time. And, and interestingly enough, he didn't beat it. Uh, although, <laughs> yeah. in all fairness to him, he wasn't in a race. I mean, right, right. I think there's, there's some motivation that goes on when you're racing. But uh, he was... Uh, he was interested. I mean, it, it impressed upon him. It seemed in that film that these technological advance and I'll, there was another book. Sorry, I'm talking too much here. But there, by uh, was it David Epstein? I think who wrote the sports gene, and he also said that they, they analyzed those conditions, and that Jesse Owens wouldn't have been maybe one or two strides behind Usain Bolt. Yeah. And, uh, it's quite interesting when you look at that, and 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 we we have to also take into consideration the use of performance enhancing drugs, particularly steroids, uh, in many cases. Um, so, yeah. you know, that the, the the women's world record for the hundred meters right now is still held by Florence Griffith Joyner. Will I go out on the record and say she took steroids? Well, that could lead to a big lawsuit. Um, I will say that. <laughs> Before she she broke all those records, one or two years before, she was not even close to being the leader of the pack, and suddenly something happened, mm -hmm. which you can see in her. Can you say that again? The, the sound it. just blocked out for a moment, uh, just to make sure that got on the recording. Okay, so... Um, so if we look at Florence Griffith-Joyner, who still holds a world record for the 100 meter, women's 100 meters she set in Seoul in uh, 1988, um, th there may be something besides hard work involved. Okay, so just look at her, her records, her performances one or two years before that world record was set and she shattered the world record by the way and no one has come close since uh -huh. um but you look at that and look at one or two years before that and you can see her body her morphology was radically different and her times were much slower she wasn't anywhere close to being uh in the top three and suddenly she was you know, not only within the top three, but she she was she broke the world record. She shattered the world mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. Well, there's I I won't go on record saying that <laughs> she took performance enhancing drugs, but I'll say that 
there may be something involved besides hard work. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the hard work, but there's, so there, there are things, um, in professional sports that didn't exist 50 years ago. Or, right. Well, I mean, we can take the pretty famous uh, example of Lance Armstrong. Um, I mean, he yeah. was that, and I remember I was auditing a physiology class at the university in Basel when I was living in Switzerland, and the teacher was saying, that guy is taking drugs, <laughs> and because he was wow. also sports, uh, uh, teaching sports medicine, and at the time, I didn't want to hear it, because I, I, I had, Lance Armstrong had been with his cancer fighting, and been, and I was uh, sick, uh, dealing with sickness after that, and that book inspired me to his book about coming back from cancer. <clears throat> so it was like, I didn't want to hear that he was taking drugs because, you know, he claimed that he wasn't, and why would he do that? But <laughs> turns out, and yeah, he was, uh, now they've taken away all of his titles. I mean, and but I've also heard that the top 20 people in any most of the races <clears throat> are taking those drugs. So, all, all, yeah, I, yeah, right. There's a there's a wonderful documentary with Greg LeMond who who tried to come back. Yeah, he already saw that. He had already yeah. won. Oh, you saw that? Okay, he had already yeah. run three Tour de France. But as he was coming back later, you know, he he realized he couldn't compete with these guys because they were all taking these performance enhancing drugs, or they're they're using techniques to. I, where you can increase, I think, the red blood cell count or something like that. Well, yeah, that, that the EPO, oh, we don't need to go into this too much, but the EPO that increases your blood cell, and then also the, the blood, where they take out blood and then inject it uh, into, before the race, which is also illegal, and they, you know, but anyway. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, that's very dehumanizing. I mean, making people into steam engines and then giving the steam engines steroids, that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, what about being um, divorced from the word fitness? Well, I mean, if we go back to the origin of species and, and Charles Darwin, it's how does a species originate? It originates from different adaptations. And... Um, One of the adaptations in life on Earth was the appearance of the neuron. The neuron makes it possible to learn. Now, you can make an argument that plants can learn too, and, and, and I think it's a valid argument because plants can, are, can adapt. But uh, the, within the, everything within the animal kingdom can adapt much faster because of the neuron. And the more neurons there are uh, in an organism, the more adaptation and learning that's possible. Humans are arguably on the apex, arguably, because <laughs> if you look at um, the American political scene, you have to wonder. But, <laughs> but humans are on the apex of that, that learning possibility. And that learning is an important part of our evolutionary heritage. And if we disregard that, which I would say the mass educational system largely disregards, and the fitness, mass fitness culture largely disregards, and we're, we're, we're removing the essence of our fitness from the word fitness. So in that, you mean the ability to adapt? The ability to adapt and learn, and the two are somewhat interchangeable, okay, okay. two words. Yeah. And, and what the mass fitness culture is doing is it's, it's removing learning largely from our movement mm -hmm. and having us move in romantic ways and, and uh, to tabulate number of repetitions, whether we tabulate it through, through time or through distance or actually counting the number of repetitions, and then encouraging us um, to dissociate from our bodies. You know, one prime example is if you go you know, to a, a health club, you'll see rows of Stairmaster, which is a simulation of climbing stairs. You'll see rows of uh, treadmills, which is a simulation uh, of walking or running. And then you'll see a lot of, many, many 
liquid crystal display monitors piping in MTV or Fox News or whatever's you know you have 300 or 400 channels to, to choose from. Uh, plus, people are usually have their headphones on. They're listening to something, whether it's a television or music. And they're, let's say, for example, they're running on a treadmill. You have a row of people running on a treadmill. They're not interacting with each other. And they're not paying attention to their movement so much. They're, they're watching a simulation of life. <laughs> they, they, they could be watching something ironically called the real world on MTV, which is a simulation of the world <laughs> as they're simulating running. Yeah. All right? and, and so they're not really uh, present to their own movements, minimally present, you could say. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Mm. Even the pace set by the treadmill is artificially set. You push a button and that sets the pace. You're not, so then you're following the pace of the machine. Right, and the ground is moving underneath you. Exactly, which n doesn't really happen in real life unless you're in a la landslide or an earthquake. <laughs> right. or an avalanche, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or an avalanche, yes. Yeah, I've, I've um, always marveled sometimes when it's been a nice sunny day and you walk by one of those health clubs that has uh, glass windows and you see people on the treadmill and you think, man, why would you want to be in there when it's when it's uh, so nice out here. Right. Why would you want to simulate life when you could be living it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's uh, what about the corporate based? Well, corporate based gets into the treadmill to some degree because the treadmill originally was, uh, it was invented in, in England to punish prisoners in the 1800s. We imported that also in the 1800s um, to punish prisoners first in uh, New York State, and, and then we, it started spreading, and it was also used to punish slaves as well. And, uh, you know, the corporate culture has seized upon it because you, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or it's all evil, but you can make a lot of money from adding value. <laughs> from creating machines that people have then have to buy, to manufacture and buy. So um, it's important, I think, to look at anything and see who's benefiting from it. Right? So the, the mass fitness culture is largely determined by a corporate culture because all of the health clubs, including the, the most popular ones now, are corporately based. They're mm -hmm. owned by corporations. And they're trying to make money. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But they're trying to make money in mass, and they're trying to, um, well, the fr what a franchise does is it standardizes something, and it mass produces it. So you have 24-hour fitness throughout the country, and I think it's spread throughout the world now, or models of it. You have um, CrossFit that's spread throughout the world. You have Yoga Works that's sort of a, you know, a chain now in yoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that bad? Uh, not in, is it intrinsically bad? I'm not sure. It, it might well be, but I think we have another option, which is um, if – to determine, to take responsibility and to, and to create our own fitness culture. Yeah, and that noise back there is our dog Watson barking, so I apologize for that. Um, yeah, I was, I don't know where I read that, whether it was in your book or that most gyms, I mean, they have to have more people signed up to, to come to the gym than they actually could come. Yes, yes. They, far more. They have yeah. far more signed up than actually come. And that's, that's how they, they make their money. And um, I, so. I also remember reading that uh, back in the 1900s, there would, um, the gyms were very different. And they, they, they were called Turnerverein, which is, comes from the German word to tornen, uh, is to do gymnastics or to, uh, to you know, movement. 
and Farine means a club. And so they had these gyms that had um, ropes to climb on. They had hula, you know, hoops to do things with. They had, I think they had box, punching bags and people would come and, it, and, and get instructed in a lot of different kinds of things like fighting, uh, the gymnastics things, you know, balancing, climbing ropes and stuff. And those fell out of favor because they were too uh, uh, work intensive. I mean, they had to have too many people there training. And they couldn't. Mm. Have, and they they also need a lot of space because people were doing things running around and and taking up space on the floor. So you couldn't have that many people at any given time in, in the gym because they needed space to do things. And now you put those treadmills together, and uh, you can get I don't know how many. I've been to one of those gyms for a long, long time, but you can get I don't know fifty people plodding away at the same time. I guess so. Um, yeah. Wonderful point, and I didn't know that bit of history. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, you, you, there's a, anything that's corporate based is going to really be um, heavily um, weighted towards maximizing profits. Yeah, and yeah. so that 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 uh, explains the shift. Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, it's hard to make money without selling things. I mean, I've seen well-intended movement you know they bring a higher level of movement and then uh, by and large then they start selling things <laughs> right right <laughs> and and i guess it's just hard to uh, to make money uh in the fitness industry without having something to sell uh, such as uh life in a capitalist world yes yeah, uh, so, so, and so yeah i mean i i that brings about uh um, notion of taking responsibility and what can we do ourselves? And again, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not against making money or, or selling things, but there are things that maybe we don't need to buy or, or we don't need to sell that we can, we can make up on our own. Mm -hmm. So, well, that'd be, well, do you have some ideas on that? Well, I, I, I think, um, we can look at the founders of different systems and see that they use their own creativity to develop their own systems. And one thing we can do is we can draw from them and then experiment and play with them in groups with our neighbors or our friends and on our own um, and develop our own way of 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 playing, so to speak, or I'm, I'm avoiding the word exercise because of its strong association with uh, a stereotyped form of movement. Right. Well, who would some of those people be who you we could borrow from or learn from creators that you? I think the best come from um, pursuits, disciplines such as could be the trombone, you know, it could play the trombone, it could be ballet, it could be karate or judo, something that has a clearly defined purpose, whether it's aesthetic or martially oriented or it's a, um, whether it's trying to get this 30-centimeter ball into a hoop like in basketball. Once you have that, you're away from the reductionistic um, way of looking at movement that fitness is, which is there, there isn't really a, a, a concrete purpose. There's an abstract purpose of, of fulfilling certain numbers, burning more calories, for example, re reaching a certain heart rate. It's both abstract and concrete to some degree, but... Um, whereas when, if you have a discipline, say cabinet making, it's to produce a cabinet, to make it as beautiful as possible, possibly, uh, to, um, or if it's so soccer, you know, it's, it's whatever, all, everything that goes into playing a game of soccer and to, to beating the opponent. There, there are outside of that, there are some interesting things that come from, I think, are drawing from hunter being uh, the hunter gathering 
uh, culture that all humans once lived in. And those would be, from my casual observation, move gnats, uh, maybe edel porto, maybe primal moves, um, evolve move play by Rafe Kelly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hunter gathering has a purpose too, is to survive in, in a natural environment. So uh, all of those are, in a way, disciplines, they're pursuits. What fitness, the mass fitness culture is, is it's turned the test into a pursuit itself, which is not necessarily bad, but apparently it doesn't suit most people because people are getting fatter, basically, and mm. more out of shape. And um, as the fitness industry has been growing and growing for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, of course, I also want to know what you think about this, that, I mean, we're also creating a world in which we have to take less and less responsibility for ourselves, um, for ourselves, um, and have less and less to do in some way. I mean, uh, escalators are one pretty common example of that. I mean, when I go through an airport or something, I see people get off the plane they've been sitting there and then they get onto the escalator and they just stand there. Now, <laughs> wouldn't you want to walk up the stairs just to get some movement after sitting or uh, even um, cars, I mean, becoming, you, you used to have to crank the window. I don't know, <laughs> you know if anyone <laughs> remembers that. And uh, if you wanted to open up the window behind you, you had to reach your hand back if you were alone. Uh, the, the locks on the on the doors nice. you had to, to, to do by yourself. And, and you can laugh at that and say, yeah, but that's not fitness. But uh, every one of those little things required some kind of movement, some kind of um, adjustment to our position. And now you can control the car, all of the things in the car from you don't have to do anything. You don't have to walk around and lock the doors. You can push a button to open it. Um, I guess there are some cars that you can that will start up at certain times and um, just things like that where we don't um, I, you know we don't ask people to be very capable we're uh, in a sort of a dumbing down I think of of ability there is a definitely a dumbing down of sensory motor ability I, I think it began with the chair right um, and before the chair was only for nobility, actually, and without even a seat back, and then they became more elaborate. You got a throne and everything like that. <laughs> now, now you have couches, and uh, but that that alone, these external constraints alone, um, reduce our sensory motor requirements that we have to go through in everyday life, and they re they consequently reduce our coordination strength and and our fitness. Yeah. Uh, so that that definitely is a, is a problem. I think um, MoveNet and Rafe Kelly and some of those people are taking that head on, and they're saying, and and the Feld, and Moshe Feldenkrais, we, let's not forget him. Um, is, is, all of these people are taking that Feldenkrais, probably most directly and one of the earliest ones, taking that head on and saying, well, that's how do we mitigate for modern culture. How do we regain our sensory motor abilities? And uh, let's not forget awareness. I think Feldenkrais speaks the most of awareness. Some of the others, I don't even know if they speak of it. If they do, it's more. it sounds like a little bit more of lip service. Uh, that's what I would say. I mean, I think awareness has become kind of uh, people realizing how important it is. And, and you talk about sports trainers and stuff and awareness, but... Compared to what uh, the Feldenkrais method has to offer, that I think it's pretty rudimentary. You know, some people may get mad at me for saying that, but I haven't seen any any kind of system. I mean, that really goes into that as deeply as as the Feldenkrais method does. That's my observation as well. That's not to say they aren't out there. I just haven't uh, encountered anything. Maybe the Alexander technique is is up there with. Uh, and, and, and that makes total sense when the, the focus uh, 
not necessarily of MoveNet or, or some of these alternative um, fitness systems that I would say are maybe in left field um, that are somewhat radical. Uh, but um, the, the, the conventional systems, if they're focused on morphology rather than function, focused on looking like the photoshopped image of a model rather than how that model might move, that's what you end up with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, you said something about, when I asked you about uh, examples of things we could do ourselves, and you mentioned karate. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, uh, I mean, it takes years and years to study, to become proficient, and you know, usually need a teacher. How, how would uh, we, you know, take our neighbors and learn from karate to, to come up with our own way of, of getting fitter? That's a great question. Well, we don't have to, karate is just one of uh, an un, untold number of possibilities. So karate is just one. But if, um, if we were to use karate, you know, it would be helpful to have somebody who's higher than my level to teach me some things. And that's what goes on in dojos in Japan. You, you go to classes and you learn from people who know a little bit more or a lot more than you do. And then you practice on your own. And, and that's, the, that's what's um, important about a, having a discipline or a pursuit something that has some real world value, whether it's playing the trombone or the violin or whether it's karate or whether it's ballet or something uh, that has some functional movement involved. Functional meaning it, the movement, there's feedback that tells you whether or not you're getting closer or further away from something that's ideal. Right. You will never reach that ideal, which is a nice thing because it makes life interesting. But you, will, you can always get closer. Fitness culture, mass fitness culture doesn't have that ideal. It's, the ideal is an abstract one. Mm, I see. Of course, there are probably a lot of violin players who would say that playing the trombone has no real world value. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, those, those snotty uh, violin players. <laughs> <laughs> um, there Which was one, one makes a better thing. weapon? <laughs> That's right. It can play louder. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was one last thing you mentioned in those points, and that was that we haven't touched on is meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you yeah. explain a little, elaborate on that a bit more? <clears throat> yeah, meritocracy is doesn't really exist. Um, or we, sh- we need to kind of see how it exists within culture. And Moshe Feldenkrais made a very political statement in the first two pages of his most famous book, Awareness Through Movement. And he, talked to- he was talking about intelligence, actually. And he was referring to IQ testing. But every test exists within a certain context and within a certain culture. And it puts certain cultures or certain subcultures ahead of others all right so um the sat test for example which uh, when i was young we we had to take to try to get into college supposedly it tests uh, scholastic aptitude and people usually take it to mean intelligence and knowledge what a test does is it tests our ability to take the test that's what it does that it's most accurate function is it tests our ability to take the test right. not to do any it, it, it maybe indicates certain other things and I, I, I emphasize the word maybe so um, certain things that we do in the fitness world will the, those tests or those measures may may indicate something and, uh, and here I emphasize the word may but do they actually reflect our level of fitness one is it depends on your definition of fitness and 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 that's a that's uh that's something we're talking about here but well you just set yourself up for that next question how do you define fitness 
I think we need to take responsibility again. And, and I think it's more interesting to do that and to define it ourselves. But I also think it's important to, to not do what the fitness industry and mass fitness, fitness culture has done and forgotten the origins of the word, you know, that it comes, um, that they originally were drawing from Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. And, and that if we look at Darwin and we look at the origin of species and the origin of the neuron, which is basically the origin of the animal kingdom, then we have to look at adaptability and learning. And if there is no learning involved, are we really becoming fitter? I see. Although, I'll continue with the being the bugging you a little bit with, I mean, the, our environment is, is actually requiring... I mean, adaption, maybe we should adapt to, adaptation, we should adapt to uh, sitting better. Maybe our fingers mm-hmm. should get faster. Our eyes should be able to take in more information from uh, a screen. Because, uh, I mean, that's one thing I wonder what motivates us to to become fitter. And, and if you think of adaptation, I mean, we actually don't need to climb trees anymore or uh, rarely ever need to sprint. I mean, those would be some of the things that the hunter-gatherers might have had to do to carry things, travel long distances. Um, one of the things that amazes me when I think about when I go out in the forest here is that if you're out there uh, hunting around, and there are no roads, you go out and hunt and follow an animal, how do you find your way back to, the, to your tribe? Wow. If you don't, I mean, I guess people probably hunted in groups. I don't imagine there was very much solo hunting because I think that'd be pretty dangerous. But the the, the art of of orientation, you know, know, knowing where you are, that must have been a much more highly developed skill than than what we have now. And we're losing that even more with GPS technology. I mean, it's, I mean, I was once, you see, hiking with a friend, and 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 in Switzerland they have these uh, nicely marked, you know, hiking paths. So you always can follow the sign. And we we didn't find a sign, and he got out the meeting, got out his iPhone, and started looking. Well, we need to go here. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and there there was a sign. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a little Wonderful tangent example. on that. There was this uh, an interesting article. I think it was in the Atlantic about the. There was a kind of a um, uh, native tribe in uh, Nova Scotia, I believe, or an island off of Nova Scotia, and they were hunters. They hunted seal and things in the winter, and ever since they got GPS, there were more accidents because, oh. and they had learned how to navigate. There never had any maps, and this was a tradition mm. that was passed down for you know a thousand years or something, and they navigated by the quality of the snow. Wow! <laughs> so wow. you can imagine how finely um, differentiated their eyes were, or and the, the sense of touch and the kinds of snow. So they would follow the GPS on their snowmobiles and neglect. Uh, maybe it says you should go this way, but maybe that way there's a, a you know a, a chasm had opened up, and you would have seen that if you had been following. It, and then they you know drove the snowmobile into the chasm or something. So. Mm. It, it, Something like that is to me is kind of tragic because you have this wonderful knowledge that these people were able to navigate in, in a in a hostile environment like that snow storms, ice, find the way out to the ocean and then bring food back and now they get snowmobiles and GPS and that skill is being lost. That you know that's a wonderful question and and it's something I really need to think about more. Um, I can respond now but um it, my response will be inadequate and when i listen to this again it'll sound foolish to myself probably but um just as a side note nicholas carr also wrote of something similar in the atlantic that pilots have are forgetting to fly and some of the major accidents have that have occurred recently is because they they were so reliant on the autopilot that they forgot certain things that would never have happened maybe 20 years ago when they were actually doing more flying. Mm. The, the amount of time they're actually engaged in flying is so minimal these days. But yes, uh, we are adapting 
uh, in a way that's dumbing us down. And that's maybe the paradox of civilization or modern civilization, postmodern civilization. It's really dumbing us down in, in many different ways, in a sensory motor way um, and in, in an intellectual way. And so I think it's important to recognize that as, as, as you are and to take measures and steps to counteract that. And I think that dumbing down does make us less alive. I think we're more and more, as I write in the book, living a, living a simulation or simulating life rather than living it. Mm-hmm. Um, to go back to the word fitness, I, fitness does not only refer to one individual. It refers to a species. And I think we... Uh, in the book, I, I talk about degrees of freedom. Nikolai Bernstein being the the great Russian scientist who who um, used that concept of degrees of, of sensory motor freedom within. In his case, he was using the human body, but you can use it in terms of anything. Uh, right now, we're also well. We're experiencing a reduction in the degrees of freedom that we have simply by sitting in chairs, for example, or wearing supported shoes, that reduces a lot. And that is reflected in our movements. Mm. We're also experiencing a reduction in uh, cognitive freedom from the way that we're being schooled in the United States, at least to take standardized tests. And universities have become, according to Chris Hedges, sort of Way they become vocational schools rather than than institutions of higher learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're losing degrees of political economic freedom, and you know right now we're facing the extinction of our species. So if we want to talk about fitness, I think it's important to talk about that. Well, degrees see, of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Degrees of freedom is not purely physical. Nothing is purely physical. There's everything else involved with that, the intellectual, the political, economic. And so to go back to meritocracy, Feldenkrais was referring to um, indirectly, I believe, degrees of cognitive and political economic freedom in the first two pages of Awareness Through Movement when he was essentially talking about IQ in that meritocracy doesn't really exist or the ideal version of it doesn't really exist because we're not starting at the same place. We're measuring certain things in our culture, IQ or certain uh, values on tests that different uh, sectors of the population have a huge advantage. Right. So we're not measuring growth of the ability to learn. We're just uh, uh, measure, uh, measuring a, a, a kind of an amount of, of, of learning. Or if it's even learning, uh, you could debate that, but an amount of, of knowledge. <laughs> right, uh, right. Okay. And, and knowledge being infinite in, in all directions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, wow, yeah. Now, the fitness industry is doing kind of a similar thing because it's, it's, it's promoting something, but it's not saying, well, you know, this model here on, this, on the cover of this magazine basically took steroids and did all these funny things to appear this way, and then we used Photoshop, right? Yeah. That's not exactly a meritocracy. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the fact that different socioeconomic groups are going to have access to different kinds of food, access to different information. There's a reduction of information for lower uh, socioeconomic groups, and that's going to affect, greatly affect their morphology. And morphology is the, the sort of the main thing that the mass fitness culture is aiming at. It's not aiming at function, it's aiming at, can I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or whoever's on the, the cover of this magazine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay. I like that what you said about the fitness thinking of that as on a uh, at a species level, that as we um, let ourselves be dumbed down 
sensory motorically and uh, intellectually. Of course, you could say those two are intertwined. I mean, I, I often wonder when I think when people my age, your age, were younger, we played a lot outside. I mean, I was outside every day. Uh, that, and the, the biggest punishment <laughs> was being grounded, which meant not going out and playing. <laughs> you know, right. So when I did something bad, I got grounded and couldn't go out, whether it was an afternoon or a whole week. And that was terrible to see my friends out there playing and not be able to join them. But I see kids today, and you know their playing is is often two thumbs and their index fingers in front of an LCD screen, and I wonder what that's going to do to their cognitive development over when we start looking at this over maybe the next fifty years, a hundred years. Uh, I won't be that around that long to see it. Maybe maybe fifty, but uh, <laughs> I really wonder how people will be able to learn and of course we're getting to a whole nother thing here we've got this artificial intelligence kind of breathing down our back um and you know people are willing to give machines more and more of the mundane tasks but as they do that they take over more and more of our lives and you know doctors are diagnosing with uh, artificial intelligence and that can be helpful but then they're losing maybe the skills to Notice skin color or how the person breathes or how they feel about taking that medicine. And I really wonder what will happen to us uh, you know, down the road 50 years from now. I wonder too. It's, it's something that I think uh, that's a very provocative question and, and something that I we, we should discuss more. It's certainly something I want to think about more. You know, regarding the the... The, the increasing use of cell phones with LCD screens and computers, we, we don't really know. This is the first time in the history of humans that you know, it's become – this has happened. We, the, television has been around for, I don't know, 50 years or 70 years. Um, and already Joseph Chilton Pierce writes about the, the, how that affects the brain very negatively. And this is sort of like television times a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I do know that um, everything that's divorced from the real world, not referring to the MTV television show, but from the real world, is an abstraction that um, that we have to bridge. And if we don't bridge it, then we're we're just speaking empty words, like the politicians talk about democracy, or and and that goes in every field, whether it's music or science or politics. You know, Richard Feynman grew up taking apart uh, his radio with his hands. Einstein had access to his father's electric dynamo factory, and he could see the workings of that. He held a compass in his hand, and, and it fascinated him for hours and for days and weeks. And there are people who go to school, and they don't have these things. And they're just like the fitness world. They're just taking tests, and they're, they're preparing for the test. My father is a scientist, and he actually meets other uh, quasi-scientists, I'll call them, who don't know the fundamentals of science that they're talking about because they've only read about them and they've memorized certain things that they've read. And maybe they've done, some people have done all the homework problems, but they haven't gotten their hands on the real thing. And I think that's what we're missing in science. That's what we're missing in the fitness world is getting our hands on the real thing, which is life, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is uh, a pursuit, a discipline, and, and not running on a treadmill, which was originally designed to punish prisoners, <laughs> while I'm staring at an LCD screen and listening to, to my iPod and you know, strapped to a heart rate monitor, and, but that I'm actually present in my own movement. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a lot, to, uh, a lot to think about and digest. And I like that image of, uh, I mean, you think the fitness people are pretty brilliant if they get people to pay for punishment. <laughs> um, they're brilliant and it's scary it's, yeah, it's, yeah but i i like the idea uh the deaf coming back you know you you brought it back always to learning and embodiment and um 
I don't want to leave our listeners too terribly depressed. Um, and so the hope is, uh, is embodiment and is learning as I can take from our conversation. Yeah, that, and that, that's somewhat nebulous. Um, and earlier, I think a few weeks ago, we had talked about um, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I think one question you had asked me a few weeks ago was, um, if everybody read your book, what, what would you want them to take from it? Or what if the movers and shakers in the fitness industry read your book and happened to agree with it, which right, is unlikely? Right. What would happen? And my feeling is, forget the movers and shakers. It's great if they read it, but we, the common woman and man, we can start to, we find an interest and we dive into it and start to explore. Um, we need to learn from other people because we are not omniscient. Uh, all disciplines, all pursuits have people who are at a higher level than us. So we can learn from them. We take that home and we play with it. We can gather in groups. We can make up our own fitness systems by ourselves, in groups, with our neighbors, with our friends. It doesn't hurt to go to the CrossFit gym and learn from them, you know, and, and if that excites you, that's fine. It doesn't hurt to do MoveNet. I think there's some great things in MoveNet or Evolve Move Play by Rafe Kelly or Edel Portal and Primal Moves. And at the same time, I think it's important to recognize our own potential to learn and that it can be gratifying, it can be fulfilling. It will be fulfilling, actually. And through that, you know, we will uh, be more engaged in life. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, in, in, in my definition of fitness, we become more fit. Right. Well, that's a, I think that'd be a nice place to, to end this talk because it gives us some hope and it gives us something we can do or some things we can do. Uh, I like that. It's also a kind of decentralized, uh, more de- democratic um, version of, of, of fitness or yeah, becoming more. I, I like to actually, maybe we should stop thinking about becoming fit and just think about becoming alive. <laughs> I I love that. I, 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 let's put that on a bumper sticker. Yeah, really. You get, and, and come join my my aliveness class. <laughs> <laughs> well, re- yeah, actually, yeah, that's what's uh, probably what everybody wants, even if they uh, we you know we don't know always know what alive means really means. We've forgotten that some cases. Great. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk mm-hmm. with us. And it's a pleasure, thank you f- for writing your book. Uh, it's a, it was a lot of work you put into that thing. I mean, and it's an important work that we need to to look at and because and, it fits into what we were talking about, the dumbing down. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on, on the podcast and tell people about what you've been doing. And well, it's uh, just a, it's a great pleasure to be here, John. Well, thank you. It's an honor to have you. And just to let people know, Edward and I are good friends, and we've talked together, and we talk a lot. So Edward helps me uh, get my thoughts clearer, and I can use them as very good sounding board. So I appreciate that, Edward, all the talks and discussions we have. So uh, again, thank you, and I think we'll sign off now. And we'll probably be hearing more from you in the future, I hope. Look forward to it, John. It's been uh, very, very nice for my my thinking as well. Well, thanks. It's definitely a mutually beneficial exchange. Okay, so that ends the Leap Podcast with Edward Yu. Uh, You can check out... Oh, I I need to ask you, where can people find out about you if they want to find your book and they want to... Learn more about you. The, the, my books are on Amazon. Um, I have a sort of a, a blog or website. I don't blog. Well, I blog maybe twice a year. Or so, but there are some articles on there and videos I share from other people. Okay. And it's at art, artofslowingdown.com. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes. Also, a link to your book at Amazon, so people can find Great, that. Thanks.
All right. Well, uh, you're in Los Angeles or the area, and so I wish you a wonderful rest of the day. And we're here in Sweden, so it's nighttime. Have a good evening. Okay, thanks. You take care, Edward. You too, John. Bye. Thanks to Edward for taking the time to talk with us. I hope it was informative and uh, inspired you to think further. The um, podcast music was provided by Podcast Themes, freepodcastthemes.com. Thank you for that. Please uh, share this if you like it and tell your friends about it so we can get more uh, listeners and also I can get more people on the show. So share it on iTunes and Facebook and everywhere else you hang out on social media. Thanks a lot and be well.